Welcome to the Social Housing Podcast from Voicescape, the only podcast dedicated to helping social landlords build sustainable tenancies. During this series of podcasts, we'll be speaking to leaders from the social housing sector and beyond, hopefully challenging the status quo a little bit, and also stimulating discussion around how technology can be better utilised to help build sustainable tenancies. I'm your host, John Doyle, the Chief Exec and Founder of Voicegate. So that year I was involved with the Benefits to Society campaign, which is now See the Person. I was one of the lead um, people. We had been developing that campaign because of stigma and the growing stigma and the conversation about social housing tenants and, you know, benefit sheets and all of that, you know, it's all channel four. And we were just kind of seeing that. And actually I was invited to join that initial meeting in Oxford. Danny Dorling was there, Don Foster from The Guardian at that time was there, um, some chief execs and some key tenants. And I think because of my housing day story, when I was talking about the stigma and the shame that I felt about living in housing, um, social housing at that time, and trying to hide it, um, I was invited and I kind of drove that forward. So that was just taking off and we were just looking at that. And then, Grenfell obviously happened and then we there was a bunch of people that just decided we needed to just have a conversation so we met in Coventry there was a whole bunch of us all over the country that came together I think there was maybe about 15 of us and we were just talking about the tenant voice and the fact that it had been ignored by their landlord um, and that the tenant voice had been not listened to by the government, by, you know, all the authorities. Today's guest on the Social Housing Podcast is Leslie Channon. She's a speaker, writer, facilitator, and commentator on housing issues with a background in tenant rights, scrutiny, and engagement. Okay, Leslie, I was wondering if you could just talk us through your personal journey to becoming a champion for tenants' rights and what that looks like in terms of a bit of a timeline. Yeah, I'm. it's it's quite weird for me because, um, you know, I had a whole career in Los Angeles and I ended up moving back here to be closer to family and to have my children. And then in 2010, I found myself a single mom. I was pregnant with my second child and I was given housing. Um, where I am in the town that I'm living now. I'm in the Cotswolds. So um, I didn't really know much about social housing until I became homeless. And for me, um, that's when my journey began. I had seen an advert in the um, um, Housing Association magazine and they were looking at co-regulation. So for me, um, I'd had board experience, I had, I'd had executive experience, so I answered the ad and I showed up. I remember the interview day, actually, it was really funny. I was heavily pregnant. It was really, really hot and I almost didn't go. But I've written since then that that was actually the best decision I think I've made of my life, actually showing up that day, because getting involved with co-regulation for me, one, kept a part of my brain working 
that was not in mummy mode when I um, had my second child. And then I also got training about, you know, housing, housing finance. We had a lot of training, um, this group. And then we started scrutinizing the business. So, um, and then it just snowballed. I started writing, I got involved with Housing Day, I wrote my Housing Day blog. And I think that even back then, I was a bit ashamed of the fact that I was a single mom living on benefits. And I actually wrote about that shame back then, that that was, ne that was never my life plan. And I knew that I wanted to retrain in something. I had no idea what it was. And then someone actually said to me, one of the trainers said to me, you know, have you ever considered a career in housing? And I said, no, I mean, what would that entail? And actually since then, everyone that I've asked about housing, they've never, you know, set out at age seven. I want a career in housing. It's like the secret society <laughs> where everyone is really passionate, but outside of the sector, no one knows about it. So then I was um, doing scrutiny for three years, getting trained, and then um, I stepped up to become the chair and I negotiated with my landlord to actually pay and fund my master's degree. I had an undergraduate degree before and I knew that I wanted to get a master's degree. And I got accepted into the University of Westminster. I started when my son, my youngest, was eight months old. It was quite crazy, actually, um, trying to get a master's with two small children, but I... I did it. And, um, and then after that, you know, we, we will kind of talk further on, but that was kind of my introduction into social housing. And then I became a member of CIH and the Chartered Institute of Housing. And then I got involved with their Southeast board. And then I became a board member at TPAS. So things started snowballing. I started publicly speaking about our tenant scrutiny panel. We won a TPAS award for our scrutiny panel. And we were able to do some really fantastic investigations into the business. So I got swept up with the whole 2010 co-regulation, coalition government um, agenda. And, and so I was at the cusp of all that and, you know, right at the front line. So it was really um, my way in, really. Okay, sounds, you, you must be one of the few people out there who co-regulation was salvation. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it really um, lit, lit my, um, my, you know, brain on fire. And because I think if I had been at home, just not even volunteering, it would have gotten really dark for me because I, you know, I had no idea, you know, my, my background was in the entertainment industry and there's not much call for that in West Oxfordshire as a single parent, you know, the, um, you know, the evenings if I was going to get involved in theatre, it just didn't work being a single mom. So I was able to put my skills to something else and I got really passionate about it. Brilliant. So you said you then went and did a master's. What did you gain from that master's? What, what, what was your the sort of takeaways from that for you that whole period well my undergraduate degree was in theater in theater arts but it was a liberal arts education so I had you know the basic and I got really involved with um, statistics and there's other stuff that goes on in American undergraduate degree the masters I wanted to learn more about housing and we did modules like the history of housing how it you know social housing came about history you know the housing finance and there was just all the different mo uh, modules that made the broad picture. Because I think a lot of people 
in the in, in the in the sector work in their own little niche and it gave me a huge broad overview of the sector as a whole how it fits in with the you know wider society and then also you know i there was some governmental so understanding you know english politics or you know westminster was really really helpful and then also being able to do some um, original research on a topic that I was really really passionate about and yeah it just kind of lit me up I mean it really got me excited and then hopefully you know at the end of it I was hoping to be able to go into a career um, and while my children were really young being able to work on something while I wasn't actually able to go out to work and when I was doing my um, master's dissertation HQN had contacted me and wanted me to write a 10 page brief on my research so there was no pressure at all to actually do really well and actually I won my dissertation won the CIH prize for best uh, dissertation of Westminster of the University of Westminster that year so there was a lot of um, uh, up you know positives for me and just knowing that people that hired me in the future would know that I have that basis and have that foundation and I'm not just someone that with um, lived experience that I've also got you know the other skill set that needs to come with working within the sector. Okay so you mentioned the prize for the dissertation what was the general theme of the dissertation? Okay so that year in 2015 there was some really interesting research that had been published. So my actual university won the government bid. There was a rogue Lib Dem um, with the coalition government roaming the halls of the DCLG at that time. And he said, I want to do this research. And they said, yeah, 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 just, just kind of go ahead, not really realizing. So, you know, the coalition government wanted this research to be done. And it was looking at the study of resident involvement and the impact, the value for money impact that it would have on a business. So my dissertational supervisor led that research and it was a case study of Amicus Horizon at that time. They're now blended and turned into Octavo. Paul Hackett was the chief exec. And they were able to show in that research that there was a annual savings of 2.2 million pounds a year to the business by by actual tenant involvement structures. So by asking the right questions, being able to have um, the golden thread throughout the whole organization. So that was an amazing piece of research. And then there was another research um, piece of research that was done by all the TMOs, the, the tenant organizations, TPAS, and I think TARO, there was a whole bunch of them that came together. And it was, in, um, it was an investment, not a cost. And it was about, you know, that yes, resident involvement, actually, you have to invest in it, but it is not, you know, that what it pays back. So those were two amazing pieces of research that came out at the beginning of 2015, right as I was starting my master's degree. Now, what I wanted to do was complete the circle and actually look at why do tenants get involved? Why do they get involved and why do they stay involved? So that is what my part of the kind of kind of completing the circle, I think, of that year of why. So I, I actually did a case study of Amicus Horizon. I did a case study of my housing association, which was a smaller housing association. I was able to survey 
about 150 tenants and then I did face-to-face -face interviews so I compiled all that information with the other information and it was some really interesting research and the 10-page brief is still available through HQN on that's the kind of cliff notes of yeah. the research and what I found and yeah I mean it isn't just all you know busybody tenants getting involved so you know there was people get involved for many different reasons so that just kind of opened up the question of how then how do you engage tenants to become involved at a later date okay well that's that's quite an interesting background because the next thing i wanted to talk to you about was an obvious area where the tenant's voice wasn't being heard yeah uh, it's been evidence subsequently and that was the whole tragedy of grenfell yeah because i appreciate you were you were busy around that time and um yeah i just wanted to ask you what were you actively involved in coming up to Grenfell and then as a consequence of Grenfell? Yeah, so that year I was involved with the Benefits to Society campaign, which is now See the Person. I was one of the lead um, people. We had been developing that campaign because of stigma and the growing stigma and the conversation about social housing tenants and, you know, benefit sheets and all of that, you know, it's all Channel 4. And we were just kind of seeing that. And actually... I was invited to join that initial meeting in Oxford. Danny Dorling was there. Don Foster from The Guardian at that time was there. Um, some chief execs and some key tenants. And I think because of my housing day story, when I was talking about the stigma and the shame that I felt about living in housing, um, social housing at that time, and trying to hide it, um, I was invited and I kind of drove that forward. So that was just taking off and we were just looking at that. And then Grenfell obviously happened. And then we there was a bunch of people that just decided we needed to just have a conversation. So we met in Coventry. There was a whole bunch of us all over the country that came together. I think there was maybe about 15 of us. And this group um, ultimately became a voice for tenants group that um, formed. But we had just met and we were just talking about the tenant voice and the fact that it had been ignored by their landlord um, and that the tenant voice had been not listened to by the government, by, you know, all the authorities. So we were just having a conversation about what we were going to do about it um, and what could we do with, you know, all of our different skill set. Um, I think it was decided quite quickly that they wanted me to be the chair. So I became the chair of that group. Um, I know TPAS was involved, Tarot, there was all the, all the different aspects of the sector were around that table, including people that were involved with the original National Tenant Voice um, back in 2010 that was actually disbanded by Grant Shapps. So there were some key people around that table. And um, but shortly after that, we, we got a call from the MHCLG, um, from Alok Sharma um, and his team, and they wanted to meet with some people. And so we showed up at the DCLG offices um, and we met with him and the team that would then go on to develop the ministerial roadshows. But we had that initial meeting and you know Alok had only been in the post I think less than 48 hours before Grenfell you know they had had the general election they'd had the whole reshuffle he had got um, shuffled in 
and he was so new on his brief and he was we he was just asking and I think the DCLG that's what they were called at that time hadn't I don't know I don't even know if they'd ever spoken to tenants so they were just asking for our help you know how do we do it how do we actually consult how do we go about change and I think um you know I, I think initially I think the one of the funny things is that Alok said that, you know, he was thinking of a town hall meetings, you know, throughout the country. And I said, I said, are you insane? You're going to get pelted with eggs. You have an angry, angry sector out there. That's not the way to do it. I said, you need to actually consult. And so we, we always kind of knew that it was going to be whatever was decided was, was going to not cover everybody. But what we wanted is we wanted tenants that had been involved with their landlord and kind of be able to speak about the broader topics, not just I want my tap fixed because my landlord sucks type of thing. But we wanted, you know, to be able to access as many tenants as we could. And I think it ended up being about 12 roadshows um, in total. The average um, was about I think 100 at each event and we had tables and then we talked about questions and what questions they were going to ask and then at the end we kind of came together and we looked at the you know the top 10 and there was like a kind of wrap up but each individual tables were facilitated and most of those tables were facilitated by a voice for tenants and the TMOs and um yeah, so I actually ended up co-facilitating seven of the ten and um, twelve, and one of them was a was one of the Grenfell events, and that was after Alok had stepped down, and it was the first one that Dominic Robb had, when he had taken over as housing minister, and it was I think that to me that was run by T Pass um, because Grenfell. United wanted T-Pass involved and so I showed up as a T-Pass director and it was a really powerful really really powerful event for me because it, it re you know there were there were people around my table that had lived in the tower and one of them was a leaseholder and he said you know for him because obviously you know he owned his home or was buying his home there was no, um, the insurance company wasn't going to pay out until there was someone that was culpable. So he was homeless, but still had to pay his mortgage. So just hearing how they were ignored and the people are, you know, in, in the surrounding areas, like how it had impacted that whole community. Yeah, that was, that was, I think, um, really, sounds, really, really, really powerful. Yeah. I'm going to say it sounds very powerful. How did those outputs from that ministerial roadshow feed into the green paper it was the whole green paper really um yeah. i think i mean the main themes stigma um was always the, in the top three if not the number one growing throughout i mean and then the, you know because we did it all throughout the country you know you had regional differences but you know access to social housing affordable housing you know there was you know, some themes that came up and not being listened to was another one. So, yeah, so a lot of the stuff in the green paper. So, and then also without us, the voice for tenants actually pushing that, you know, tenants on the whole said at every um, roadshow that I was at that they actually thought that having tenants at a national level, a national voice 
however that would look. People didn't know how that was going to be set up, but actually having a national voice would be a positive thing. So that was actually in the green paper. Stigma had a whole chapter structured, you know, it was chapter four about battling stigma, um, about living in the sector. And then... um, Well, it's fair to say, it's fair to say, Leslie, that I didn't see that in the white paper. No. So what's your what's your disappointments or what's your view between the between the green paper and all that work you put in and what finally came out in the white paper? Well, I think you know the ever-changing housing ministerial role and the successive governments we've had, I think it's been really hard to replicate that passion. I mean, I know, for example, Alok, you know, he was down at ground zero and um, his people had said to me, you know, we were just chatting at some of the road shows that it was really, really hard for him to leave. He was so affected by that. So actually having, I think it would have been a different green paper had he stayed in post for the publication. I think for me, um, having him shifted off in the middle of that diluted the green paper in itself so there was something put in there about you know home ownership and that to me in chapter four of the green paper was yes to have all the stigma but ultimately everyone wants to own their home which in fact then created stigma that it was just a stepping stone not actually a place where you want to stay so I know that that had a different agenda kind of put into it. So looking at the white paper, there were several things that were missing. So obviously stigma wasn't addressed at all. And I think that, I mean, it was, I mean, there was part of it that was addressed in the sense that tenants need to be treated with respect. But I think there was a, something released on Twitter this morning by T-Pass talking about actually having someone be treated by respect and kind of blaming stigma on the frontline staff of housing associations kind of it doesn't go far enough it needs to be the wider societal and that needs to lie with the government and the way that the government values social housing their obsession with home ownership is all over it and it's based on one report Um, I've still got to do some research on that and actually dig down into that research. But ultimately, I think they were just this household report was just asking people, if you had a magic wand, would you want to own your home or rent your home? And most people would say, yeah, I want to own my home. I mean, but how (laughs) how affordable is that really? So that so that tagline and using that statistic, 75 percent of people living in social housing would prefer to own their home is just a false narrative because that is not, I don't, I don't, I don't believe the statistics behind it. And then the other thing in the, in the white paper that is, uh, is this shared ownership. I'm actually a shared owner now. Um, I became a shared owner, but shared ownership is not home ownership. It's not home ownership. It's a leasehold. It's not a freehold. So this pseudo shared ownership being under the guise of you can own one percent of your home and be a homeowner no that isn't that isn't the case I mean I live in a semi-detached house I don't have to worry about cladding but you've got the cladding scandal people who've bought their homes and then you've also got the leasehold scandal where people have bought their homes privately 
and then they've actually bought a leasehold and it's been sold under, you know, the leasehold has been sold on. So you've got people in the private sector caught up in this pseudo non-owning homes. And then, um, so this whole home ownership obsession and there's zero investment or about social homes for social rent. And so that is kind of concerning for me. And then um, there's obviously no conversation about a national voice for tenants or having tenants voices heard in an official capacity. But in the white paper, it does say the government really wants when they're developing the consumer standards and what is actually going to be measured, they want tenants around that table. Now, which tenants are gonna be around that table? Which tenants' voices are going to be heard? I don't know, but I think it's really important that they listed that first um, in there, but there's no national structure or government-backed um, national voice. And then I think the other thing that I was really, really excited about in the green paper, which I kind of pushed to be in, and I was super excited. It was about making the case, the business case for resident involvement on the off, off the back of my research and off the back of the Amicus Horizon report. That was in there. That was in the green paper and it's nowhere to be seen. I mean, I would love to have a value for money measure of their resident involvement so that it could go along the lines of that research uh, that was done by the University of Westminster for Amicus Horizon. And then I think you would get more buy-in from landlords when they could demonstrate the value for money from the resident yeah. involvement structure. So there was a there were there was a, absolutely a lot missing, but I still think that there's hope. I mean, I think that there's hope, but it depends on where we go from here, really. Okay, because I was, I was going to say, I, I, my initial interpretation of the socialising white paper was that it was a little bit of a stick with which to beat social landlords. But it sounds to me like what you're saying, or would you agree that it's actually in the best interest of both social tenants and social landlords to engage more? You know, the idea of the value yeah. for money aspect of it, as you say, it, that's the, it, it's, it's a little bit carrot and stick. If they gave a bit more carrot and said there's a very good reason to be closer to have more resident involvement and it's value for money rather yeah. than you know we're telling you you need to have closer involvement with your residents well i mean i think the government has to take some responsibility because they cut back on funding they forced they went down this road of forcing the value for money and you know, um, organizations having to be more, you know, become more commercialized and sweat their assets and do this building, you know, capacity to be able to fund their social value, you know, their, their kind of social value work where they've kind of, you know, pushed them in a different direction. So then to come back and actually hammer the sector by following, you know, the guidelines that they've set out it's quite unfair. Um, um, I mean, I'm, I obviously, I mean, I think that there's, a, I would say a third of landlords that are doing resident involvement really well. And there's some real shining examples, people that are members of TPAS, people that really empower their tenants. But I think there's still a long way to go. I think that there's maybe a third that just tick box and just kind of move on, just have tokenistic stuff. And I think that, that, that there's a third of landlords that have just left it and say, you know what is not important. I mean, I've had landlords say, 
we don't kind of need to listen to tenants you know we kind of know what we need to do and that's actually quite horrifying when I'm speaking in a public event about tenant voice and to be dismissed in that way but I think that what gets measured matters and I think that if they know I mean and this has been kind of my wish list I mean when someone when they when they interviewed me for the Guardian I said my wish list would be to have the consumer standard on the level of the value for money standard and the governance standard and that looks like that is going to be the case so therefore if they are getting measured they will do what they are supposed to do or they will get penalized so I think that there's going to be a lot of scrambling but I also think that the regular, you know, the, the actual regulator needs to be funded because without funding, it's going to go nowhere. You know, actually it has to adequately be funded and have teeth. And then I think that, I think this is, um, was Dominic Robb's passion when he was housing minister and we were working with him is that he was really, really into league tables. And for me, as when I was a tenant, if my repairs weren't being done, I didn't care really whether my landlord was number one or number 550 compared to my neighbor, you know, cause I don't, I don't have a choice. So I can't then just choose. Well, I want to go with the number one. I don't have a choice to choose. So I think that that is just a waste of time. I think it might, you know, name and shame people, but you know, it's not going to change the service that a tenant is getting by saying, you know, okay, well, my landlord's number one in the country, as opposed to number, you know, 50, is not going to change the quality of service. So measuring it that way, I think is weird. And then I also think that measuring it, um, I mean, from reading it, that it looks like they want to measure the number of complaints against that is how well you're doing. And for me, if it's about the number of complaints, what's going to happen? They're just going to hide the number of complaints. They're just going to go for, okay, we, you know, we can't have more than 50 complaints. So then it's not going to log them. So I think that having tenants around the table to be able to develop what is actually going to be measured. And I think some, some, some serious social value measures need to be put in place to be able to be overseen and fed back. And I think also the thing about a health and safety designated person within the set, you know, within a housing organization, so they're actually responsible, I think is good. And I also think one for the consumer standard is good because it makes someone culpable and they will make sure that, you know, hopefully make sure that things are being done according to, you know, government requirements. But I think that's the issue with Grenfell is no one, there were so many people involved and we're, and we're seeing in the Grenfell inquiry, no one's wanting to take responsibility. And it was just across the board, catastrophic failure of not being listened to, dismissing, you know, the pesky tenant because they're, you know, they're like too loud. And we have to find a way to be able to bring people together you know, I know that the sector really, really feels hammered as well. They feel that they've really been beaten up. They've been put into a, a really tricky situation with, okay, can they remain viable and not being taken over by, you know, a bigger organization if they don't fulfill their, you know, obligations to the, to the regulator? And, you know, how do they keep it all going? So, I mean, I think that there is lots of work to be done with the sector and also building bridges with tenants um, to, to bring people together. Okay. Well, 
you're obviously very passionate about the whole sector, Leslie. And yeah. sort of to, to round out this podcast, I just wanted to ask you in terms of, you know, it's easy to get depressed. You can look at a situation where the demand for social housing, affordable rents, however you define it, is going up. The free market solution to building those houses and providing, you know, homes is broken. There's just no other yeah. way of describing it. We've got a, a socialising white paper or the government or both, which is obsessed, as you said, with home ownership. What, what, but I still sense behind all that you're optimistic. And I'm just, what, what gives you cause for optimism despite that fairly, fairly bleak <laughs> summary? Well, I mean, I think it's going to get worse for a lot of people before it gets better. So I think, you know, COVID this year has really demonstrated the importance of having a safe, secure home and having a community. I mean, for me, you know, I've written about my COVID story. I was really ill with COVID for about eight months. I'm, I'm now on the mend, um, dusting off the cobwebs, but I was seriously ill, but we had a house. We were adequately housed everything worked inside my home. I had a community because I have, I've laid down roots. I had a community step in and do shopping and cook meals for us when, you know, I was here with my kids alone. That hasn't been the case for a lot of people. People that, especially I think in London, that lived in really, really tiny spaces. And I'm not even talking about people in social housing. I'm talking about people that maybe are sharing because most of their working day was either in the office or business meetings at restaurants and when all that shut down all of a sudden their space at home became not fit for a purpose so i think that it's going to continue to be really really hard because there's not adequate affordable housing for everybody at each price point i think that with brexit looming also i think we're going to see a lot of people losing their homes that they've maybe even bought, got mortgages on, people not be able to afford their private rent. Um, I think the welfare bill is going to go up. But I think ultimately, whether it's this government or there's a general election looming, I don't know, or another government, I think that the solution is going to be building social housing at social rent, the right size in the right place. And I think we're going to have to get it's going to get really dark and it's going to be really sad for a lot of people. But I think ultimately, I, I really believe that social housing, if it's properly funded by the government and they're given the rain to actually build and not charge affordable rent, because affordable rent in West Oxfordshire, 80 percent of the market value is really, really expensive seriously expensive it's unaffordable to most people that are not working executive you know position jobs so you know for me it's about having adequate housing and there's also I know you had Laura on a, um, a week or so ago and she was talking about you know the private rental sector and also there's a lot of empty homes and I think that um, I think one of the good things that might come out, I mean, I'm hoping that will come out of COVID is home working. I mean, I have a home office, which is really great. Other people won't be needing to necessarily commute into London. So I'm thinking up north where there's a lot of empty properties, unused properties, they can bring those back into 
you know, um, rental, um, either by the private rental sector, people like Laura that are wanting to have a social value to what they do, or, you know, housing associations buying up those properties and bringing them back up to a rentable standard. And I think, you know, there, there, there are solutions in many different areas. And I think that social housing providers are ready and at the kind of biting at the bit to kind of provide that solution. Um, and I think, you know, there, that there is, um, you, know, the, you know, being able to then go back into their social purpose and to be able to embrace that as a business model um, and backed by government, I think will eventually, you know, be, because I mean, the sector right now is all singing from the same hymn sheet about social houses at social rent. Um, and I think it's just gonna, you know, that is the ultimate direction of travel. Okay, well, it'd be nice to end on that note and think that, you know, as you say, coming out of the darkness of COVID, the realization that health and home Mm -hmm. uh very closely interwoven and hopefully having had the health shock that we've had it will give us a renewed focus on making sure everybody's got a home yeah okay well okay. i'd like to thank you for your time today leslie it's been fantastic chatting to you um and i look forward to seeing you again thank you for having me it's been really fun okay thanks john if you're new to the social housing podcast Please subscribe if you're listening via Apple Podcasts or leave a follow if you use Spotify. Also, please remember to leave us any feedback, good, bad or ugly. It can only help serve improve us. Finally, I'd like to thank you all for your time and attention. I appreciate that everybody's busy, but I do hope you learned something from the experience. I certainly did. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time on the Social Housing Podcast. Goodbye.